Welcome to Tuning In, the podcast of the Handel and Haydn Society, recorded in Boston, Massachusetts. H&H is the nation's longest-running arts organization, founded in 1815, and since the 1980s has been a leader in the performance on period instruments of music from the Renaissance through the 19th century. In each episode of our podcast, we explore music and artistry and the way both weave us through society and life in general, within the early music field and outside of it. We highlight music featured during the society's past and that planned for its future. I'm your host, Guy Fishman. It may be an obvious choice for introductory music to the third episode of Tuning In, but it's just so good. It's the first movement of Vivaldi's concerto for violin titled Spring, which itself is the first of four concerti collectively known as the Four Seasons. It was played here in concert by Aislinn Noski, directing the Handel and Haydn Society in Symphony Hall in January of 2012. Thank you. 
Aislinn was scheduled to close the Society's 2020 season in May by performing these works once more, but like all of her concerts and those of the rest of us, these were cancelled. The next best thing, then, is to hear Aislinn talk about a composer and his music that are so dear to her. Aislinn Noski has been concertmaster of the Handel and Haydn Society since 2011. She was a member of the Canadian period instrument ensemble Tafel Music and the chamber ensemble E Furiosi, and continues to perform with the acclaimed Eibler String Quartet. She has directed both period instrument ensembles and modern symphony orchestras, including the Charlotte, Utah, and Niagara symphonies. She has recorded widely, including a series of live recordings of violin concerti by Haydn and Mozart with the Handel and Haydn Society. Aislinn is joining me by phone. Welcome, Aislinn. Hey, guys. Thank you so much for being here. The theme in all of our lives at the moment is what we are doing through this strange and difficult time. You're someone who is either leading H&H, directing an orchestra, you're up in Canada with a string quartet, you're playing concertos here or in Europe, you're all over the place. And then it all stops and it must be difficult. And I'm wondering how you are uh, managing through this. Yeah, I was on the road um, maybe 80% of the time until about a month ago. As you say, my work took me all over the place, Boston and further afield, working with lots of people, lots of different orchestras. And it's been interesting to go through this process where for the first time in my career, and I think the first time anybody could ever remember that the show finally did not go on. So yeah, I went from sprinting to uh, standing still. Of course, there are lots of aspects of what I do that I miss. Most of all, I miss playing for audiences and connecting with patrons in person. But there are actually some things that I'm finding out that I don't mind giving up, the sort of complications and the frustrations that come with, with a lot of travel. It's been fortunate that I can be at home and feel safe and take care of myself and know that my family is okay right now and spend some time reconnecting uh, in a different way with music. You know, I've been spending some time playing the piano, which is something I did when I was a kid. Uh, not very well, mind you. But as an adult, I never have time to go much further than preparing my violin repertoire. But it's been really nice to reconnect with that. Sort of an unexpected silver lining. So I'm definitely hanging in there. And, and I feel really lucky to have music to spend my time with. So you're taking up the piano again. How is your mandocello doing? My mandocello? Isn't that what it's called? <laughs> I think you mean the... Uh, Banjo mandolin. Cello banjo? It's a banjo. The what what? It's a banjo. You said cello. <laughs> no, isn't it called a mandocello? Isn't it like a, it's tuned in fifths? And No, it's a mando banjo. A mando banjo. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and no, I'm not playing it. It makes a god-awful racket, and I feel sorry for my neighbors. <laughs> so this is like a super GMO musical instrument. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. it's manufactured to be loud, and that, that tells you all you need to know about the instrument. <laughs> Fantastic. So we're speaking on what would have been the first day of rehearsals for our last subscription concert with H&H. The second half of that concert was going to be devoted to the Four Seasons. In the eight years since your last performance of the works with H&H, I've played a lot of Vivaldi with you. And it's obvious to me, and I think to anybody who listens to you play this music, that you are a fan. What does Vivaldi mean to you? I don't think I would have a career if it wasn't for Vivaldi and his compositional skills. 
you know, every day it, it occurs to me at some point to be indebted to this wonderful genius. I think the repertoire that Vivaldi left for the violin is so full of possibility that I just can't imagine having my own personal interest in playing the violin if there wasn't this, this legacy that he left. I can relate to the feeling of being indebted to a composer, of being grateful that this person existed and created something that has helped me become who I am. Can you think of any examples in Vivaldi where you are indebted to him? Yeah, I think the fact that Vivaldi's music is both very specific in his instruction and at the same time, it also leaves a lot of room for the injection of the personality of the performer in the music. Now, I may be wrong because I'm never going to have a chance to ask Vivaldi. Well, I won't have a chance to ask Vivaldi and report back to you. <laughs> But being interested in performance practice of the 18th century, I've done a lot of research about it. And I think that what Vivaldi gives us in his compositions is a template rather than a fully detailed, laid out set of instructions. It's the basic framework for what he was looking for. I think because of that, he's not telling us every note to play. We know from studying sources that were written in the time, we know that the most famous musicians were renowned for adding their own ornaments to pieces and for uh, being very changeable in the performance. There's firsthand accounts of, of how wild Vivaldi himself would be when he played his compositions. And those pieces of interest, they lead me to think that this music, it looks maybe very unassuming if one sees it on the page, but it's a gateway to a realm of injecting my own personal feelings and the feelings of the people I'm playing with and the expressions that every individual group comes up with that I'm playing with into the performance. And it's amazing to me that I've performed the Four Seasons more times than I can count. And every single time, it feels to me like I'm playing a new composition. There's a freshness and there's a there's an immediacy and there's a new feeling to it, even though it's hundreds of years old. And I can't get enough of that. Your solo violin repertoire ranges from early 17th century Italian music to works written recently. Your recording of unaccompanied music contains Bach and Michael Oesterly, a living Canadian composer. So you play in a variety of approaches. Did you study Vivaldi before you began to perform on period instruments? I've always been drawn to Vivaldi's music, even before I started playing Baroque violin. I would say my first musical love was the string quartet genre. And uh, when I was in school, I, I thought I would be a string quartet player. I didn't think much of Baroque instruments. I thought they were interesting, and I thought it was for somebody else other than me. And it wasn't until I was drawn in to playing on a Baroque violin by a very good friend and felt the physical energy of playing music on a Baroque violin, which really sparked a fuse in me. I find that Vivaldi's music, especially in a historically informed approach, it's always got so much energy in it. And I think that's probably what drew me to Vivaldi, even before I had an interest in the performing materials of the 18th century. When Nigel Kennedy's Four Seasons recording came out and it totally blew my mind. And however many years later, when the fantastic Italian group Il Giardino Armonico's Four Seasons came out and these just all like I wasn't playing Vivaldi professionally at that point, but they, they all struck me as remarkable at the time. So the thing is, I guess I wasn't unaware of Vivaldi uh, before I started playing Baroque violin, but he wasn't the center of my universe. He was a known entity, one you loved, yeah. but not as central as he is today. Yeah, exactly.
Aislinn, as you know, the Four Seasons are a part of a 20th century phenomenon, and they did more to reinstate Vivaldi in the repertoire than anything else. Three recordings. They were first recorded in 1939, and then again in 1950, and since then, over 1,000 times. Some of these recordings have sold over 2 million copies. That's almost unheard of for a classical music record. Obviously, there's something about these concerti. What do you think makes them so special? I think that there's probably more than one reason that these pieces are so popular. My latest thoughts are that it's a combination of things. I find that after I play a concert with a piece by Vivaldi on it, I have at some point tapped my toe along to the piece, and I've also hummed a section of it to myself, which is usually more of a melodic section. In my experience, composers tend to be good at either making you tap your toe or making a melody that you can sing along to. I think it's rare to find a composer who can do both, make you tap your toe because it's so energetic and also make you sing along to a lyric passage. So I think that's one component in the Four Seasons. I also think that the fact that he takes the experience of the passage of time through a year and uses that as a jumping-off point... Because that is universal, it really resonates with people. I play these all over the world, and everywhere I go, there's weather. So I can always make some kind of not particularly funny quip about that from the stage, and people will have that resonate with them. I mean, it's brilliant in that the passage of time and the seasons are simple And yet it's a universal concept that we've all experienced. And when people can have their own experience resonate with something that they're experiencing in a performance, that that deepens the connection between the performer and the audience. And I think not to be overlooked is that they're incredibly well-composed pieces of music. There's no way that these pieces would be as famous as they are if they weren't absolutely excellent. Are there favorite features or favorite moments in the music for you? Well, if I have to be perfectly honest, you won't be surprised to hear this guy. <laughs> the favorite parts for me in the music are the ones that are super impressive to the audience. <laughs> so I like, to, I like to get some attention occasionally, and I like to show off playing really fast. So I am literally stunned right now. <laughs> I did not think I would ever hear that. That's completely out of character. Yeah. I really like the storm in summer. <laughs> uh, it's very fast. because I'm originally Canadian, I really like winter, especially the part near the beginning of winter where the music depicts the stamping of the feet to get the snow off. (laughs) ¶¶ 
be fair, I am from the part of Canada where it never snows, which is the Pacific Northwest, but, you know, there's still a big romantic love of snow in my heart. Well, full disclosure, I don't grow this long hair for nothing. I love (laughs) summer for the exact same reason. It's such a physical workout to play that movement. And listen, it's visual as well as auditory. I mean, it's music that you have to experience in the room. What do you look forward to most in performing these? I look forward to this amazing thing that, that has never not occurred when I'm performing these concertos, that wherever I'm playing, whoever I'm playing with, there's always a new component to the music that I had never noticed before. There's always some detail that is new to me in a concert. It'll be, you know, like, oh, hey, I didn't notice the violas played that really awesome note there. Or, oh, hey, you know, the rhythm section sounds so funky right here, like an actual funk band. It's amazing. Not every piece I play all the time has that in it. But there's something in these concertos that even though they're not that complicated, There's always some new detail that I'm enjoying myself and entertained by as I'm playing them in order to try to entertain others. So you're looking forward to the process of preparing and performing them and seeing what comes up. Exactly. I'm looking forward to continually experiencing them as something totally fresh and new. Every group I play with has a different set of personalities in it. And I think that that comes out in the eventual performance, and I find that totally fascinating. So I look forward to playing them again with H&H and still with anybody else who will have me. Do you always direct the ensemble when you play with them, or do you ever solo with someone else directing or conducting? I've done both in my career. I've played them where I'm directing the orchestra as well as playing the solos, and I've also had the experience of playing the solos and following a conductor And I found it much more difficult to have a conductor to follow than to just do the conducting, so to speak, myself. Now, when I lead these pieces, I don't conduct in the traditional sense. I don't use a baton. I will indicate through physical gestures while I'm playing what I would like the orchestra to do. And it's totally possible to play them with a conductor. And I just found that it added extra layers of difficulty in terms of the immediacy of the communication with the players. And in my heart, I I think that that's because these concertos were never meant to be performed with a conductor. In the 18th century, the composers were more often than not, in fact, the soloists. In the 19th century, conductors become extremely common and and useful and needed. But in the 18th century, it was much more of a do-it-yourself. If you're writing the music, you're going to be the one performing it and directing it. I love to have conductors for other works, but in the Four Seasons, they don't seem necessary to me anymore. You made a slight understatement just now when you spoke of some of your physical gestures. Anyone who has seen you perform and anyone who has performed with you has benefited from the active, crisp, physical approach that you offer both your colleagues and your listeners. There is no doubt what your intention is and where you want things to go. And I wonder if playing this with a conductor or with someone else directing maybe doesn't rob you of that, but you have one more person to not only accommodate, but align yourself with. And if your physical gesture doesn't align with her or his direction, then you're having a moment. Yeah, I think that's a really fair way of of describing it. I mean, I've been fortunate to work with fantastic conductors, but there's that expression, too many cooks in the kitchen. And I think that's something uh, that's wonderful about 18th century music. I think that's where some of the magic of Vivaldi comes from, that he himself was the star. He was writing these pieces for himself, and he was 
playing them probably like a god. I mean, if I could think of one violinist I'd pay to hear in history, it would probably be Vivaldi, because I'm still so curious about what he, how he played, because people at the time thought he was incredible and, and wrote about it quite poetically. So yeah, it's, it's, I think you're right that too much information in terms of direction can be unhelpful on a certain level. What are the challenges for you then, both with your own part and in the conception of an approach for the ensemble? You know, with the four seasons, the, the challenge is, is my physical stamina, actually. The four concertos are longer. I did the math at one point. I'm pretty sure they're longer than the Brahms Violin Concerto. And I play them without stopping. I put a cadenza in between each concerto just to keep going, uh, because I like to do them as a cycle, even though they were not necessarily intended by Vivaldi to be performed that way. I just like to do it that way. And so it's about 40-ish minutes of almost flat-out violin sprinting. And it takes strength. And I have been interested to see as I, as I get older that certain things are getting harder. A few things are getting easier, not many. <laughs> but uh, the, the stamina of having the endurance to play all of the four seasons at the absolute peak of my ability has been something that I've actually had to train to do. I've always trained outside of the violin to try to stay healthy and to keep myself in good shape, but I actually worked with a trainer to conceive of exercises for my right arm, especially to strengthen certain muscles in order to play the four seasons to my absolute best ability. And that's been interesting. And then, you know, for my challenges in terms of how to unite an ensemble when I'm directing them is that I think one of the hardest things about these concertos is that they have a ton of emotional content and it changes so quickly that when I meet an orchestra, uh, for example, in February, I played with an orchestra in Nova Scotia, Symphony Nova Scotia, and I met them on a Wednesday and we played on a Friday night and I had nine hours to get with them in rehearsal to get a unified approach to these pieces that we'd never played together. Yes, of course, they know the Four Seasons, and of course, I know it, but we don't know how we play it together. And and getting these quick changes of emotion and getting everything perfectly well played together as an ensemble is really tricky in that little rehearsal time. I mean, it's tricky at the best of times uh, in any repertoire, but in Vivaldi, I think he demands these extreme contrasts fast, slow, soft, loud, everything contrasting you can name, and one after another. It's why it's so exciting to listen to and to play, but that's really hard to execute.
Symphony Nova Scotia, I presume, performs on what we would call modern or standard instruments. We at HNH perform on period instruments. You do both. Is there anything that you have to change in your approach when performing with players who predominantly play one or another? You know, I actually don't go into a situation directing uh, a traditional symphony with a plan to change my approach. But I think my approach does change naturally because I try to start from where the group is and quickly assess where I think we can get together. And, you know, I can work with people who have never had any interest in anything to do with the 18th century as long as they're open-minded. It's been really interesting to see that, you know, I've played with some really excellent orchestras over the years who are maybe not that interested in 18th century performance practice. That's fine. Those people can play the pants off of all of the 19th century symphonic repertoire up until today. I mean, they do extraordinary things. And if the group has an open mind to the concepts and the ideas that I'm bringing and my passion for Vivaldi, if they're open to a new experience, we always exceed my expectations. I find it really exciting to do that. I get really nervous before I work with orchestras for the first time, but I always come away totally exhilarated. I saw a picture taken of you performing the Four Seasons with the Albany Symphony Orchestra. There is, in this picture, a violist with the biggest smile And that captures everything you just said. I feel like there's someone Mm -hmm. who got on the bus with Aislinn (laughs) and went on a trip (laughs) down Vivaldi Lane. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. You know, I I think I know that photo and I take a lot of inspiration on the days when I maybe don't feel like practicing (laughs) from from those kind of smiles. (laughs) That's as good a source of inspiration as any. Mm -hmm. And that's good because these days there's not a lot to do but practice. (laughs) Our time is almost up in this episode, but there's more I'd like to ask you about. Would you come back next time? Yeah. Fantastic. Stay healthy, and I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for talking, guys. Aislinn Noski is concertmaster of the Handel and Haydn Society. Thank you for tuning in. In addition to more episodes, you can find supplementary materials including program notes and scores of each of Vivaldi's four seasons as well as translations of the sonnets they contain and the first edition of the solo violin part, all on the Handel and Haydn Society's website at handelandhaydn.org podcast. I hope you'll join me for the next episode.